Hey, Jay, how did Magneto get control of Genosha anyway? I know he's got a cult, but a whole nation is a lot, let alone one as historically anti-mutant as that one. Well, Miles, you know how he kept demanding that the humans give him a country? Sure, he's been on and off doing that since the Silver Age. So? They did. What?! I'm Jay Edidin. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 295 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, outs, and retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera, and the ins, outs, and retcons of its greatest, darkest alternate universe, the Age of Apocalypse. Which is to say Earth 295, and yeah, Jay, you pointed out earlier, we're on episode 295 talking about Earth 295. Clearly, this is an episode that should never have existed and would never have existed had it not been for some errant time travel. Wait a minute. Does that mean that the actual real episode we should be doing is episode number 616? I mean, there's a lot of X-Men out there. There is, and to be fair, uh, journeying from episode 295 to episode 616 would be enough of an epic journey to justify a gigantic crossover. Honestly, I definitely don't have the energy to put one of those together, but I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about the convergence, and I don't know, man. I don't know. Well, we have multiple years until we get to 616, so we have some time to plan. Do we, though? Because they went right back from 295 to 616. If we're talking about this particular episode, or this entire timeline, rather, as an aberration, I mean, we should be expecting to jump to 616 at any moment. Oh, crap, you're right. Man, this Mkron stuff is confusing. Anyway, now that we've introduced the concept of Earth-295, which is where we've been hanging out lately since we are in the middle of the Age of Apocalypse, let's talk a little bit about that timeline, where it comes from, and what it's up to. Alright, so, when Professor Xavier was accidentally killed back in the mid-70s by his time-traveling son Legion, history rewrote itself from that point. Thanks to the Emkron Crystal at the nexus of all realities, the main Marvel Universe was replaced by the Age of Apocalypse. That, again, is Earth-295. And in the Age of Apocalypse, Magneto was the one who formed the X-Men in honor of his dead friend Chuck, but not soon enough to prevent the pseudo-Darwinist Apocalypse from taking over North America and turning it into a mutant supremacist dystopia. There was, however, one survivor of the previous timeline, the already time-displaced Bishop. He told Magneto how history should have gone, and Magneto promptly sent his various X-teams on different missions all over the world to fix things. One of those X-teams, and one of those less closely affiliated with the X-Men themselves, is run by Gambit, who has his own very long, complicated history with the X-Men in general and Magneto in particular. Specifically, Gambit used to be a member of the X-Men before his boss Magneto hooked up with the object of Gambit's affection, Rogue, thus putting the kibosh on all of Gambit's mutant power thruple dreams. When he found out that his OT3 wasn't canon, he rage quit. Nonetheless, years later, Magneto has given Gambit a mission. To steal the Declaration of Independence. That is not accurate. Oh, uh, fine, to steal the Amkron Crystal in hopes that they can use it to put reality back how it was supposed to be. That makes reasonable sense, since we know that the, the Crystal does stuff like that. Although, now I'm on a weird train of thought based on the very little I actually know about the National Treasure movies. So Nicolas Cage as Remy LeBeau? I mean, he was going to play Superman that one time. I can see this weirdly vividly. Oh, and it works really well because he did play Ghost Rider, and there was that whole brood trouble in the Big Easy storyline, so it all connects. Does it, though? Does it really? It would be like one of those Tyler Perry and Medea movies. Uh, Nicolas Cage would just play everybody. See, I'm imagining his gambit as, like... Oh, gosh. I, I feel like you'd have to have at least a, a fair tinge of Cage's character from Raising Arizona. I feel great about that, actually. Actually, just Raising Arizona, but it's Gabbit and Rogue. <laughs> God, that works so well. I love everything about this. All right, Coen brothers, get on this. It works super well. It works kind of upsettingly well. 
Which brings us to Gambit and the Externals number one, Some of Us Looking to the Stars. This is written by Fabian Nicesa, penciled by Tony Daniel, inked by Kevin Conrad, and colored by Marie Javins. And look, as, as good as this is and as cool as this team is, there's really only one thing in this issue that matters to me, and it's not going to turn up um, till close to the end. I mean, I guess we should probably talk about the rest of the issue too, though, right? I guess. Now, the last time we saw much of Gambit, he was leaving the X-Men because his OT3 was, as it turned out, not canon. We also find out in the opening narration that the reason he left New Orleans to join the X-Men in the first place was because the Teeves Guild's benefactress Kandra, who moonlighted as a horseman, was killed in the succession wars of Apocalypse's various horsemen. I mean, okay, we know that Kandra has always had multiple gigs at once. In the main Marvel Universe, she is the benefactress of the Teeves Guild and the Assassin's Guild, and she's one of the not-very-interesting villains, the Externals. So, I guess Horseman, even Dead Horseman, is kind of a step up from External? Let's be real. Pretty much everything is a step up from External. Anyway, what's Gambit been up since the whole New Orleans thing and the X-Men thing? Well, let's see. He has been leading a pretty rad band of thieves with a kind of baffling name. They're called the Externals, but like Externals. And I think he sort of wants it to mean outsiders, but honestly, he's really stretching the concept. Well, and what really confuses me is that Gambit left the X-Men on very bad terms. He's super mad at Magneto specifically, and at the X-Men kind of in general. So why would he name his own team the X-something? Like, wouldn't they be the G-something? The G-Men. Then they could be, like, radical gangster, spy, FBI, whatever old-timey types. See, here's what I think. I think that he wanted to compete, branding-wise, with the X-Men— but then he just chose a really crappy name, so it didn't work out. Remy LeBeau is not known for his judgment, it's true. Right? Now, the externals do a lot of humanitarian stuff, in general Robin Hood-type things, and also general ongoing thwartage of the bad guys. I like that in this series we learn a little bit more about the humans, uh, and specifically their resistance, because they have one, and the externals have been helping them, like you said, doing sort of Robin Hood, robbing from the mutants, giving to the humans, or giving to the poor mutants kind of stuff. What I also really appreciate, once again from the narration, is that we learn that the externals' base is right near the Temple of Human Redress, which is basically a, a religious place where humans can go to like offer their complaints about the current political structure. And this makes sense, because we know that Apocalypse is basically just a corporate manager when it comes down to it, so of course there's an ignored suggestion box somewhere within his empire, in the form of a church. Yeah, and of course it's a very fancy ignored suggestion box. So, that's their basic premise. Who's on the team? Well, we have Jubilee, who's our first point of view character. And Jubilee decided when she hit puberty and her powers kicked on, you know, she basically had a choice, which was to fall in with Apocalypse or go join the Resistance. She decided to go join the Resistance and in fact was talked into it by Gambit. One of the things I like about the beginning of this issue is that the opening narration mentions that Jubilee on her sixth birthday was blowing out the candles on her birthday cake when Apocalypse took North America. I like the idea, I like the sense of history brought along with the fact that since this character was a little girl, this is the way the world has been. This is what she grew up into. We talked about that somewhat in our Generation Next episode, and I like that we get a little taste of that here as well. This builds some interesting kind of bits and pieces of the timeline of Apocalypse's ascension, too. You know, I feel like just with the main Marvel Universe, if you try to fit year numbers into various events, it immediately falls apart. Well, one of the cool things about the Age of Apocalypse, in theory, was that it could be kind of self-contained. You could have a limited universe that could have a coherent timeline. Obviously, that hasn't worked out. Um... So, back to the externals. We've also got strong guys, as Guido Caracella. Uh, normally, in the 616, we see him running around with X-Factor these days. He really looks like a mutant from the Dark Knight Returns cosplaying Cyclops. He kind of does, yeah. It is a weird freaking look. And his look actually bothers me, not because it's weird. Weird is fine. But he doesn't fit the motif that Tony Daniel in the X-Men Collector's preview for the Age of Apocalypse was talking about going for with this team. Tony Daniel wanted to have the externals look sort of medieval so they could really uh, reinforce the Robin Hood association. 
And we see that with Jubilee. She's got like a cloak and a lot of fabric wrapping. We see that with Gambit. He's also got a cloak. He's got bracers. Like they could conceivably be in a post-apocalyptic medieval kind of setting. But Guido doesn't look that way. It's just the two of them. Also, I found out that Jubilee was supposed to have a pet hawk in this series. And I don't know why that didn't happen. And I also don't know why it would have happened. But it makes me happy. I really don't see Jubilee investing the time, the kind of time and attention that it takes to adequately train a raptor. Maybe the raptor trained her. I mean, we do know that she's had some heart-to-hearts with Warren Kenneth Worthington III back in the main timeline, so there is precedent. Maybe the raptor just is Warren Kenneth Worthington III. Like, she puts a little hood on him and he flies around. So the, the guy that's running Heaven is actually a different Warren Worthington? The real one is a literal hawk? No, it's the same one. He just moonlights as Jubilee's hunting buddy. Yeah, okay, sort of like how he changes between Angel and Archangel forms for a while back in the 2010s. Yeah, but he doesn't change form at all. He just has, like, a hood and and jesses and stuff. I believe this. Uh, Anyway, who else do we have? Uh, Let's see, we've got a very rainfire-looking sunspot. And according to Tony Daniels' notes, again, from the X-Men Collector's preview, the gift that keeps on giving, uh, the Rainfire look was completely deliberate. It had just been revealed, of course, right before reality rewrote itself, although we all saw it coming, that Rainfire really was Sunspot. So this was just a nice little persistent nod to that. Like, he's got that same facial buttress thing and the same sort of frame-like armor around his body. Also, did you notice that when he's not powered up, he looks um, kind of, well more white than usual i did um and there's also a moment you you asked if this was the first instance of his whitewashing and you could have been referring to that but you could have also been referring to the moment where his hand turns chalk white and he comments on it in in the comic because i was i was i i I remember noting down that that was some depressing foreshadowing Yeah, I mean, we've talked in the podcast before about how, as time goes on, Roberto da Costa is drawn as less and less black and more and more white. And certainly in Brazil, you have people with all all sorts of skin tones, but like, when Sunspot first showed up, and for many, many, many years, he was specifically dark-skinned, and that just starts going away more and more around this time. Yeah, that's an ongoing problem in comics, and this is a character you can very specifically map that with. So... Gambit finishes up the lineup of the official team, and I gotta say, Storm would have been so good in this. Yeah, she's kind of wasted in Amazing X-Men, honestly. Like, it's sort of interesting seeing her in a relationship with Quicksilver, but she doesn't do very much in the core X-Books in the Age of Apocalypse. They could have been long distance. He can run real fast. That is a very good point. And she was married long distance to Black Panther for a while. Although, actually, no, I guess she was in his book during that time. Well, she was long distance with Forge for a while. And that worked out great for everyone. Yeah, well. But there's also one other kind of member of the Externals. Who's that? Right. That's Lila Cheney. She is, in this universe, ostensibly human. We know she's a mutant. She doesn't. No one else does. Um, and she's not in the gang official. She is She is their, their official human contact. Um, she used to be a rock star. Now she works underground because, again, she's a human. Will her past in Earth-616 as an intergalactic thief and intergalactic teleporter factor in? I'll give you one guess. I mean, she's a thief in this universe, too, just not intergalactically yet. Yet? Now, their hideout is in the formerly Morlock tunnels, where they find a very dramatic Magneto very dramatically waiting for them. And I appreciate that this whole team is, like, these guys are hard team Gambit. Their first response to Magneto showing up is hostility and suspicion. Well, remember, Gambit and the Externals, despite its completely unrelated name and mostly unrelated lineup, is the book that replaced X-Force. And so, therefore, that's what happens. I mean, when X-Force meets basically anyone, even the pizza delivery guy, they all power up their lasers and swords and stuff like that. Yeah, but in this case, it's the guy who stole their boss's girlfriend, or who the guy who started a relationship with the girl their boss wasn't willing to tell that he liked her. Well, you'd think Guido would at least be happy about this part. I mean, it's mentioned multiple times, mostly by Jubilee when she mocks Guido, that Guido's in love with Lila Cheney and is only sticking around in the hopes that she'll reciprocate his feelings. Oh yeah, I don't think we mentioned that Lila and Gambit are an item. Lila and Gambit are an item. They are, and honestly, yeah, I I can totally see that. I can also totally see it. 
I have trouble with Lila as she's written in this series. Like, she doesn't have a ton of personality. She has very little agency. And in a lot of ways, she kind of just feels like a combination of Magic School Bus and Narrative Rebound. Yeah, I mean, that's often a problem we see with female characters who are love interests for more focal male characters, is they just become accessories. And so, yeah, Gambit's got his trench coat, or medieval cloak as the case may be, his throwing spikes, his quarterstaff, and his girlfriend. Those are his accessories. Like, I get why they couldn't have given her her powers from the beginning, because that would have broken the entire Age of Apocalypse concept. Right. But at the same time, that's so much of her personality, and the justification for it here is, is which we'll get to shortly, is, is shaky. Now, Magneto is there to take them all on a heist. They're going to steal the Emkron crystal eventually, but first they've got to make do a pre-heist. Um... To which end, they go to Apocalypse's legendary science chamber. They take out the Madri, and they take out the Madri who are guarding it in a way that I want to comment on because it's hilarious. So this Jubilee also tends to pull her punches. She has trouble with the idea of using her full powers. And in this case, she detonates their garments on a molecular level, which is some get smart nude bomb bullshit. Oh, man. Okay, so this brings me back to when I was probably about six years old. I don't have many memories of childhood, but one that has stuck with me that I'm pretty sure I've never discussed publicly, but here we go, is that myself and the girl that I carpooled with came up with this invention called the Nuclear Naked, which was a machine that took people's clothes off, and we came up with, like, a theme song for it, and I remember doing drawing pictures of it. Like, I remember vague memories of my cat when I was a kid and the way my parents wore their hair and like that and that's it. Listeners, please send us your depictions of the nuclear naked. Make sure they stay PG. I mean, based on how little we knew about bodies of non-children and sexuality, I'm pretty sure the drawings that we drew back in the day were mostly PG. Oh no, no, I don't care about its results. I'm curious about the device. That's fair. That's fair. I remember it had, like, robot arms inside it. Oh, so it literally just took people's clothes off. Yeah, I'm not sure that we really justified why such a machine would exist when there were far simpler analog methods of doing this, but, you know, I was six, whatever. I mean, it's got a great name. Well, I thought so, and we said nuclear, not nuclear. I'm just saying, take that, W. You are well-educated children of the Cold War. Well, uh, anyway, nuclear nakeds very much aside, um, what do they find after beating up the Madri and detonating their clothing? They find Apocalypse's librarian, the same person who tipped Magneto off and has been helping the rebels all along, and that, my friends, is why we are here. That is the true main character of this series, Super Doctor Astronaut motherfucking Peter Corbeau with very long hair and the most new wave outfit I have ever seen. Oh man, his hair is so long and straight and beautiful. Back before I gave into my inherent curl, that was the hair I wanted, and I don't know for sure that it was because of Peter Corbo on this page, but it probably was. Seems plausible. Super Doctor Astronaut Peter Corbeau has found the Shi'ar Galaxy on Magneto's instructions. Uh, Magneto, of course, heard about it from Bishop and, and is, is, you know, looking around for it. Well, this makes sense. I mean, Super Doctor Astronaut Peter Corbeau does have a PhD in avian imperial astronomy. Yeah, you know, he keeps it on the shelf behind the others because he has to double layer them like some people who do with their with their paperbacks. Super Doctor Astronaut Peter Corbeau also has this fancy virtual reality headset that he puts on Lila Cheney at Magneto's instruction to awaken her dormant mutant powers. I assume he built this using his PhD in quantum virtual potential activation. Either that or it's just an old virtual boy. You know, this is actually not the only time that Magneto talks to uh, an ally and says, hey, just so you know, you have a secret mutant power, and the only thing you have to do to use it is this machine slash try real hard. You just have to believe in yourself. And wear a red helmet that Super Doctor Astronaut Peter Corbeau built. Well, it turns out Lila has been, you know, repressing her powers since they activated, you know, briefly sending her into a fugue state because apparently 295 Lila was not nearly as well equipped for teleporting spontaneously into space as 616 Lila was. 
Once she has those powers back, she teleports so hard her clothes shred off, as if she had been impacted by the nuclear naked. That's right, we have an X-Men character using their powers, slash having powers used on them so hard that their outfit explodes. It's been a long time, listeners. I bet your throat is parched. Take a drink. So did the nuclear naked leave people's clothes intact? Or or did it and like did it take them off and like carefully fold them or something? Because I'm imagining if it had that many arms, like that's what I'm picturing. Is it being very neat and precise about it? I mean, my mom folded my laundry for me when I was little, so I don't think I thought about that part. I think it just threw the clothing into a pile. Uncool, nuclear naked. Uncool. Well, our heroes aren't alone being teleported into space by their suddenly exceptionally nude ally. That's right, because they are joined by the extremely outmatched and somewhat pitiful Javert to Gambit's Jean Valjean, that being none other than Julius Richter. And oh god, he sucks. He sucks so much. Yeah, it's one of the other few X-Force characters in this book. It's Richter, and he's kind of like if Havoc from Factor X, you know, who went from being a hero to being a villain, kind of had the same journey but sucked more. Yeah, and we're, like, whinier about it, which is amazing, because Factor X Havoc is really whiny. So, Richter here is a Mudir, and Jay, you looked up what that rank name meant, right? I did, and my source, Dr. Internet, informed me that um, while in Apocalypse's army that term means a commander— it's a somewhat outdated Egyptian-Arabic word that was used for the director of a directorate, um, which might be the only explicitly Egyptian thing in Apocalypse's whole setup. Well, Richter may suck, and he may be obsessed with doing everything he can to get a promotion, but he at least is good enough to jump into the teleport clothing explosion after the externals. Does that make him good or just lucky? I don't know. Back in stately apocalypse whatever, Super Doctor Astronaut Peter Corbeau says he's gonna be killed for this, but he doesn't care because he'll self-destruct the science chamber first. Thanks to his PhD in ethical sabotage theory, I assume. And his general spectacular badassitude. Presumably he will surf out of the explosion and then go swim across the Atlantic Ocean or something equally ridiculous, you know, and an afternoon's work. I think he's going to become a mermaid. I think he will. I think he will find the void left by the presumably murdered Namor, and using his mermaid charisma and powers, and his degree on advanced mermaidology, he is going to revise the Kingdom of Atlantis into a glorious, glorious empire and help him go to space. Also, he's going to bring Namor back, and they're going to get married, because Super Doctor Astronaut Peter Corbeau is the only human Namor could ever admit was good enough for him. Oh, yeah, Namor would start saying Corbeau Rex instead of Imperius Rex. No, I, I really don't think he'd go that far. Well, maybe not. But regardless, we will bid Super Doctor Astronaut Peter Corbeau a fond, respectful farewell. Um, Super Doctor Astronaut Mermaid Peter Corbeau. Right. As we go to Gambit and the Externals number two, where no external has gone before. Written by Fabian Nicieza, penciled by Tony Daniel, inked by Kevin Conrad, Al Milgram, and Mike Christian, colored by Marie Javins, with separations by Digital Chameleon. So, this issue starts with layer upon layer of glorious references. Right. The title is, of course, a reference to Uncanny X-Men 107, where no X-Man has gone before, which is itself a reference to Star Trek, etc. ad infinitum. But what's even cooler, significantly cooler, is the first page where we see the team looking shocked at whatever's in the foreground, and the following two-page spread with the externals on the left in this alien landscape facing off against the Shi'ar Imperial Guard on the right. It is almost exactly a recreation of the first page and first two-page spread of Uncanny number 107, and I love, love, love references like this. I love the moments in Age of Apocalypse that are explicitly analogous to or variations on specific moments within the 616. Like that there are there are bits of time, there are fragments that even if they're not repeated exactly are powerful enough and definitive enough that they'll echo through in spirit. Oh yeah, that is one of the most fun parts about being an X-Men continuity fan, is you, you get to see so many of those loving, loving homages. So, you may notice, gentle listener, that 
the Shi'ar Imperial Guard here and the Shi'ar that we're going to see later are not brood, which kind of contradicts what we saw in Tales from the Age of Apocalypse Sinister Bloodlines. We're going to get to that later, but for now, just be aware, this is kind of the Shi'ar Empire as we saw it in X-Men back in the Bronze Age, but if it was, like, worse. Significantly worse. So Guido catches the fully nude slash unconscious Lila, uh, knocking Jubilee off his back as he does, and I love that Jubilee just snarks at Guido com- like continually about this whole thing, especially during this. I mean, she's being kind of mean, but it's X-Force. You have to have interpersonal conflict. Well, and Jubilee also historically and canonically has no time for your fucking makeouts relationships. What was it that Mondo said in Generation Next? I believe that he said specifically that Mondo was tired of you two sucking face. Yeah, so uh, Jubilee and Mondo could hang out. Uh, you know, if Mondo didn't die horribly. Speaking of X-Force, I forgot to mention this in issue one, but it is canonically established that the word bohunk exists in the Age of Apocalypse. That's the most important point of this entire episode that is not Peter Corbo related. The heroes run the hell away because, holy shit, it's like the Imperial Guard. They're the most powerful warriors in the anywhere. And Gladiator is super offended about them fleeing. They insult us by not surrendering and begging for their very lives. Sunspot, on the other hand, is so excited to be both in space and fighting aliens. I'm reminded of the New Mutants as Guardian Wars storyline, where Sunspot is just delighted to be in the realm of the gods hanging out with mythological people. Well, or the recent, to us now, New Mutants arc. Uh, Yeah, true, true. But yeah, Sunspot's fun in this. He is, and it kind of drives home how much I've been missing him in the era of the 616 that we're covering. Oh yeah, totally. Well, the Imperial Guard does catch up, but thankfully, Gladiator dropping a gigantic boulder on the heroes doesn't work. And Strong Guy punches him into space. It's great. They run the hell away into a really cool-looking alien forest. It's all tentacly trees and plants. Lila's no longer naked. I I think she's wearing Jubilee's cloak. I I don't know. I I feel like superheroes should just pack backup clothing every day like preschoolers are required to. All like in little backpacks with their names on them. Exactly. And they should have their initials like in in the waistband or whatever. Makes sense to me. The tentacle trees, being tentacle trees, grab them all. However, this comic being approved by the Comics Code Authority, it doesn't go where it otherwise might. Uh, Instead, a whole bunch of retired Shi'ar assassins who were exiled to be farmers for failing to protect the previous emperor from being murdered by his crappy kids, Deccan and Deathbird, show up. As it turned out, by the way, these warriors turned out to be, like, really into being farmers, so guess that punishment didn't quite go as planned. Yeah, exactly. Uh, But the farmers tell our heroes, hey, the trees are crying for help, and Lila realizes, yeah, this planet was calling to her while she was naked teleporting over here. It does need their help. And that's also why the Imperial Guard are here. That's right. This isn't where the crystal is, but Mad Emperor Deken, who is also not a great dude in this universe, has telepathic spies, and they foresaw cataclysmic dangers. This seems kind of tautological, or at least like it's a reality loop, like they saw cataclysmic dangers, which turned out to be the externals who teleported here because of danger, which turned out to be the Imperial Guard who were here because the telepathic spies foresaw dangers, etc. But, you know, it's space opera, whatever. And to remind everyone, Mad Emperor Deken in the main universe also acquired the Emicron crystal and was going to use it for reality-destroying stuff, but thankfully the X-Men and Phoenix were able to stop him. You may note the distinct lack of the X-Men and Phoenix in this universe. That's a problem. And in fact, reality blinks out of existence for a second, again, just like it did in Uncanny X-Men number 107. As Super Doctor Astronaut Peter Corbo said, I can tell you what will happen if these cosmic blinks keep up or get worse. The fabric of time and space will tear itself apart. The universe, as we know it, will die. It's time for the farmers to explain all of this to everybody, and also to give Lila a neat new outfit with, like, pauldrons and pouches and stuff. Basically, using the Emkron crystal, Deken exiled his sister Deathbird and killed his other sister Lalandra, and now reality is falling apart. And this planet, being on the outer rim of galactic stuff, 
is next. It's about to be hit by the Emcron wave of reality being overwritten. And remember, this is what happened that ended Earth 616 in the first place. This ended all of reality once, and apparently it's going to do so again. Well, we're going to find out why pretty soon, but first, they're in trouble right now, and unfortunately for our heroes, the Imperial Guard aren't the only ones after them. As you may recall, um, Richter, Evil Richter, fell through Lila's uh, teleportation with them, and since this Richter's main instinct is to suck up to whoever's in charge, he decides he's going to help the Imperial Guard track the heroes because he's got a tracker on one of them. He's also extremely, extremely shirtless. I'm not sure anyone, including Dalton and Roadhouse, has ever been as shirtless as Richter is in this series. I mean, he saw Lila's clothing explode, so he figured that's just what everyone was doing. And once he realized that wasn't the case, his shirt was already off. I guess it's for the best he didn't get to his pants. Seriously? I I know Tony Daniel has, has gotten to be a better artist since this, but every time he draws Richter, it's like a study in everything wrong with his sense of both anatomy and perspective, and it just gets worse and worse. Maybe Richter's in charge of the infinites that he is in charge of in this universe because he's got more muscles on top of his muscles. His pecs are a horrible alternate universe unto themselves. The crystallization wave starts to hit as they're getting into a big fight with Richter and the Imperial Guard, and Lila can't teleport again yet because she's burned out, so guess who beams everybody up into space? Ooh, 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 can I guess? Please. Is it the Starjammers? It is! Specifically, it is Mademoiselle Hepzibah, Raza, Chaod, and their captain, who isn't Corsair in this universe, because remember, he's a brood that got separated from everybody. Their captain is the exiled Princess Deathbird, totally a villain in the main universe, and here, the leader of a bunch of space pirates opposing the Empire. And I actually really love this. Like, in the Age of Apocalypse, everything should be recognizable based on how it was in 616, but a little bit darker. And so having Deathbird be a goddamn space pirate is pretty wonderful. So this also strikes me as really, really true to her character. This is a character who in the 616 is in a lot of ways set up as as the opposing power to Lalandra, who's all about being the good guy and lawful and generally sort of polite, although she does a lot of murdering too. And this is a Deathbird who doesn't have that to push back against. Her main opposition, her main, you know, problem is Deken, and she is in a universe where Deken's power is largely uncontested, which means she's had to step up as a leader and as a person in ways that 616 Deathbird really didn't for a very long time. Yeah, it, it works really well. And so she talks about how they have to fix this whole thing. They have to get the Emcron Crystal away from Deken to save reality and also because she just really hates her brother. And the externals, specifically Gambit, agree. And I appreciate that to make his point about how important this is, Gambit jams his hand through the side of one of the ship's computers and rips out a bunch of sparking wires and holds it up in the sky as he declares his intentions. Why? Why would you do that, Gambit? Those wires were probably really important. They were probably responsible for, like, oxygen or, I don't know, the headlights. No, no, as a Master Thief, Gambit knows exactly where the drama wires are located. Oh, that is a very good point. Anyway, that's also what I do to show that I'm serious anytime I need to make a point in a meeting. Oh, so maybe for the best that we're all uh, just meeting over Zoom these days, probably. It goes over great at the office, let me tell you. Oh, okay. Well, that takes us to Gambit and the Externals number three, To the Limits of Infinity. Written by Fabian Nicesa, penciled by Salvador LaRocca, inked by Al Milgram, colored by Marie Javins, Joe Rosas, Mike Thomas, and Matt Webb, with separations by Electric Crayon. So Salvador LaRocca is going to be a major, major X-Men artist years later. I am most familiar with him from Extreme X-Men, but he's done a ton of stuff. His style here is super different than the sort of airbrushed pretty people style that we'll see later. At least some of that has to be an issue of colorists, but yeah, although his gambit really early on is like bizarrely Val Kilmer, but with half a nose. Okay, okay. So we have Nicolas Cage and Val Kilmer each playing one version of Remy LeBeau because they're from alternate dimensions and they have to fight. 
No, I would not cast Val Kilmer as Gambit. Well, I wouldn't have cast him as Batman, but what can you do? I keep recasting the role, obviously. Mm. Now, the Starjammers and the Externals are on to the fanciest of Shi'ar worlds. I assume this is Chandelar, um, although it's never named as such, which the Starjammers and Externals are going to sneak into. And man, the opening two-page spread as they're preparing to do this is freaking gorgeous. Like, the Starjammer, which is to say the ship of the Starjammers, is enormous in the foreground, and it's so, like, beautiful and rounded, but also with lots of little fiddly circuit bits. And in the background is this immensely, impossibly long energy absorption pipeline from, like, the dying planet into Deken's empire. It is such space opera glory. What do all those little parts do? I don't fucking know. They look cool. I assume that at least one of them is a nuclear naked. Yeah, at least one. Well, this The mechanism around the planet um, exists to contain the powers of the crystal, but that's not really our party's concern, even though they're there to steal it. Uh, they beam down and into a mass of soldiers, which it turns out was the plan. Uh, Guido, Sunspot, and Jubilee are going to hold off the soldiers, and... We also learn in the process of this because the the reality blinks are spreading and they're they're getting to to closer and closer to the crystal itself that sunspot can absorb the energy from them at least to a point. Uh, okay, so two questions here. Number one, we know that sunspot absorbs solar energy. I mean, I guess there is a neutron galaxy inside the Emkron crystal, like, that's canon. So is he just absorbing the solar energy from all the stars in there? And does that mean that if Cyclops was here, he could also absorb the Emkron crystal into his face? Okay, first, he seems surprised at it, but he also mentions specifically that he can absorb cosmic energy. So he's got a wider range to work from. Um, Sunspot, I mean. Okay, well, okay, that, that does make sense. But, uh, additional question, so the externals just randomly showed up and the Starjammers weren't expecting them, does that mean that their initial plan was for Deathbird to just beam down to the planet alone and do this whole mission herself? I mean, this is X-Force, so a certain lack of planning makes sense, but goddamn. I assume they were busy doing nebulous resistance and trying to find a way to do this, and reality just kind of dropped a handful of extremely well-equipped teams in their lap. Well, that could be, that could be. But in response to your second question about Cyclops, I'm going to go with yes with some difficulty, just based on what we saw in the one annual where he was able to absorb energy from lightning. Oh yeah, I forgot about that. That was fucking cool. That was. So I would say that Cyclops would be able to, with some difficulty, Havoc probably could much more easily. Yeah, that's a really good point. And Vulcan? I know this is Shi'ar space, but I don't want to talk about Vulcan, so let's move on. Right on. So, um, anyway, while while those three, while Guido, Sunspot, and Jubilee fight with soldiers, absorb cosmic energy, etc., Deathbird, Gambit, and Lila are going to go steal the crystal. Now, this poses some problems, the first and most obvious of which is that the crystal itself is several stories tall. As it turns out, that's cool, they just need a piece of it, because any piece of the crystal contains the entirety of the crystal, as Deathbird very, you know, carefully explains... After all, how could one ever define the space needed to contain infinity? No sooner have they approached when Lila gets sucked up into the crystal and Gambit dives in after her and Deathbird reluctantly follows. So, it's time for the guardian of reality named Joff, whom I always remember as being named Jeff, and I just, I really want him to be named Jeff, Miles. I mean, we can just decide he's named Jeff. It is our podcast. This is Earth 414. Maybe it's just spelled J-A-H-F, but pronounced Jeff, and we see the correct spelling because he's the guardian of all reality and he can mess with stuff like that, but but it's actually Jeff. I think so. So Lila and Mad Emperor Deken are already here at the core. They're transfixed by these beams of red light that are coming out of the crystal, like that one scene in the dark crystal. Uh... Deathbird goes up to kill Deken while he's distracted, but then she's transfixed as well. And so Jeff explains to Gambit, Anyone who's ever come here always wants something in return. Only people never thought different were the X-Men. The X-Men been here? You know them? Not the hairy clawed guy Wolverine into orbit. Well, not the Wolverine you know, anyway. It does get confusing, even to me. 
See, the inside of the Emkron crystal, the neutron sun, is a nexus point between all matter and all antimatter. That means all matter and all antimatter crossing over to every single different reality in existence. Think of the Emkron like a doorway. It's necessary to always keep the door closed, not just in one reality, but in all of them. If that door were to have been left open, let's say in the world you know as real, then the draft would eventually reach other realities and worlds, affecting the people which live in them. And Jeff knows all about this because there's only one Jeff in only one Emkron at the center of all realities. That's right, this is the same Jeff from the original Dark Phoenix Saga. That's why he's talking about knocking Wolverine into orbit, which he uh, did. Yeah, so he takes a while and basically explains the concept and origins of the Age of Apocalypse. And it's weird that this broke the timeline instead of creating a split timeline. Well, I guess it kind of makes sense. I mean, the idea is that because Earth-616 disappeared, that meant that Phoenix never went with the X-Men to prevent Deken from doing his whole deal and fucking up reality. And since this crystal touches every reality... That basically means that Phoenix and the 616 was the only thing standing between the Emkron Crystal and Madame Emperor Deken and, like, utter universal multiversal annihilation. No, what I'm saying is 616 shouldn't have disappeared. It should have just split. I guess so. I think it's just that the Emkron is so tied into the entire multiverse that when it gets messed up, it has effects so thorough that it overwrites the way that timelines normally work. It doesn't just split timelines. It just starts to stomp on them and erase them. Okay, but again, why would this impact the crystal more than anything else? Or is that just sort of a byproduct of Legion being Legion? Oh, no, I think it's specifically because since Phoenix never happened in Earth-616, she never was able to heal the Emkron crystal. That means that if Mad Emperor Deken messed with the crystal in even one universe, in any universe within the multiverse, it would spread out and destroy them all. I mean, effectively, that's the main thing that ended Earth-616. It wasn't the paradox from Legion dying. It was the fact that that meant that Deken had not been stopped, and he had been able to corrupt the Emkron crystal, and reality started collapsing. I suspect that you meant the paradox from Xavier dying or from Legion killing Xavier, but okay, I will absolutely buy that explanation. Well, Gambit's got to make a choice. He can't have the crystal without leaving something in return. It's kind of like Vermeer in the Avengers movie, but less rage-inducing. Yeah, like not a Nazi. Yeah. And the outdoor kids get in just in time to see him give what he describes as the only thing he has to offer. He doesn't specify what, but it's it, it, it's his feelings for a rogue, right? I think so, because the series has made a point of talking about how he hasn't fully committed to Lila and it's something she worries about. And in issue number four, we see that he is fully committed. And I can't really think of anything else it could be, honestly. I mean, I can think of some other things that it could be that, that aren't on the page, but I, 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 that's, that seems like a weird place for the book to go. And this sort of makes more poetic sense. <laughs> Fair enough. Whatever it is that he offers the crystal, the crystal's okay with it, it accepts it, it ejects them along with a shard of itself, and they get ready to head back to Earth, except for one of them. Sunspot can't go back, he's absorbed too much cosmic energy, and if he returns, he risks blowing up basically the world, so he is gonna stay there and presumably explode. It wouldn't be an Age of Apocalypse book without at least one heroic sacrifice. And that takes us to Gambit and the Externals number four, The Maze, written by Fabian Yacieza, penciled by Salvador LaRocca, inked by Al Milgram, and colored by Marie Javins. So this issue has a really weird structure. It's told as a kind of interrogation flashback, as Apocalypse interrogates Richter about what happened. And I feel like that would make no sense in podcast form. So we're just going to go ahead and normalize it and start with the past. Gambit and Lila flee from Richter through the sewers. Richter maybe hitched a ride back? Um, uh, he's done it before. I mean, we find out that Lila apparently saved him when the world was being crystallized by the Emkron crystal, but, like, why? Yeah, he's terrible. Anyway, they run through the sewers, they're playing decoy while Guido and Jubilee get the shard of the crystal to Magneto. 
These are the most elaborate sewers I have seen in a long time. They're like soaring cathedral flying buttress catacombs, which... I don't know. I mean, maybe it's just a reference to Gambit's past in the impressive sewers of New Orleans deep underground. There's a sewer museum in Brussels that T and I went to a couple years ago, and we went there, and it was really cool. Yeah, you mentioned. That sounds rad as hell. Maybe I'll go there someday. I hope so. Their mascot is a cute little cartoon rat. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty awesome. Lila asks Gambit why, if there was going to be a decoy team, he dragged her off with him. To which Gambit responds... Because you're my girl, Lyle. If we're gonna die in some stinking sewer tunnels, wouldn't it be nicer if we died together? That's... that's terrible. That's not a good, good idea of what romance works like, buddy. You, you, you are doing it wrong. As for Jubilee, she's clearly doing something right, based on the homage-laden narration that she gets as she runs away. She's not a firecracker. She's an atom bomb. In Adjectiveless X-Men number 28, those are the terms used to talk about Jubilee and Jean Grey as they're facing off against Sabretooth. Really nice little callback here. Well, and once again, Jubilee is being chased through the sewers by something or someone large and implacable. Yeah, the narration talks about how she could kill the person chasing her if she powered up her powers, but her heart is broken— also, she has Charles Lenger, Magneto and Rogue's toddler-slash-infant-slash-whatever son, with her, and he's crying because apparently her later baby Shogo is way better behaved. But we find out Guido betrayed her. Guido, it turns out, has been working for Apocalypse's forces, for Richter, this entire time. And he's been doing this for a couple of reasons. The first is that he's in love with Lila. And he wants Gambit out of the way. He's, he hates Gambit. The second is that, well, he was captured a while ago and the baddies planted him with, with a tracker that's also a bomb. And, you know, basically said, well, they'd blow up him and anyone around him if he didn't go along with their plans. I'm sorry, kid. I really am. You know I love you, but I can't let you get to Magneto with that crystal shard. I don't want to see you hurt, Jubes. It's Gambit I hate. I've always hated him. In fact, that's why Charles is here now. They had run into Nanny in the sewers, and Gambit had smashed her so that she couldn't lead them back to the X-Mansion. Because remember, Nanny bubbled up baby Charles back in Astonishing X-Men, and also Amazing X-Men, we see some of that there too, and took Charles to safety when Apocalypse was on his way to attack the X-Mansion. Apparently safety in this case means Gambit? Yeah, well, uh, well, we'll see how that goes. So Gambit and Lila hear Richter ranting about how he knows what's going on in the distance, and they go back to help, and they see Guido and Richter together. And Richter, being a villain in training, cannot help himself from villain-splaining. Guido, though, he's just afraid Lila will think badly of him. Poor guy. Also, terrible judgment, Guido. Terrible judgment. Right, Richter doesn't want to share the credit later, so he causes a cave-in to kill them all, and Guido manages to hold up the rubble so that Gambit can pull Lila out of the way and the two of them can get free. Yay, redemption! Guido, you're being selfless. Or at least, you know, not as horrible as you might otherwise be. I don't know, like, Guido is such a different character here than he is in the main universe. He's so love-struck over Lila and so depressed all the time about it. But I guess it kind of makes sense, because in this universe, Guido didn't have X-Factor. He didn't have the team that became his family. He never really progressed past where he started. Well, and he's made this kind of choice in the 616, too. You know what this is? This is him killing Rain's kid. Oh, you're talking about the Hell on Earth War. Yeah, this is Guido killing Rain's kid so he can bring Monet back to life. That's true. He does make emotional decisions. That kind of is in character for him. Good point. Gambit has a choice to make. He can either save Lila in one corner of the room, who's about to be crushed by rubble, or he can save baby Charles and the crystal shard from being taken away in the other corner. It's kind of like that time that Sabretooth made him decide whether he was going to save his brother or his girlfriend. Gambit has to make horrible choices in every universe, apparently. Well, his brother or the girl he'd just met and been conning. Well, yes, but uh, point being. And Gambit decides to go for Lila. 
to go for the woman he loves, which leaves Guido to take the baby and the crystal shard in the other direction as the whole place collapses. And that brings us up to the present, where Apocalypse is interrogating Richter, kind of interrogating Richter. It's kind of like Apocalypse isn't playing good cop, bad cop, he's playing tautological cop, as Richter wonders. Where am I? You are here! Where is that? Where it is. Do you always lie or always tell the truth? One of those? Ah, see, that means you must be telling the truth. Well, anyway, it just keeps going on like that. <laughs> uh, Apocalypse, you know, whatever, he's in charge of an entire continent. I guess he can just do whatever he wants. Uh, Apocalypse is really pissed that Richter tried to go after Gambit instead of going after the baby. In Richter's defense, babies are not very good at stealing. It's true. Well, Richter came back to Apocalypse to report that the externals were dead, which, of course, they're not. But Apocalypse knows Richter only did any of this to advance his position, so he scracks Richter's head to death. Now, normally, actually, Apocalypse would be fine with that. He's, he says as much to Richter, but he's like, you know, but someone else did it better. That's right. Guido's back, too. He showed up. With a baby and a shard of the Umkron crystal. Basically, he traded those for having Apocalypse's forces leave both him and the object of his affection, Lila, alone. As Apocalypse says, You have gained much, Guido Caracella, and the only thing you have lost in the process is your soul. Foreshadowing? Yeah, some more Hell on Earth war foreshadowing. Dazzler and Exodus, over from Amazing X-Men, also written by Fabian Nicieza, not coincidentally, are searching the Morlock tunnels at the end of this for baby Charles, and they find Nanny all torn up, which is very sad. She can't feed anyone baby food now, but they also find Gambit and Lila, and they sense that Jubilee's alive somewhere, so that's good too. And they ask what happened. And Gambit equivocates and realizes what his choice meant, both for him personally and for the future of the world. Congratulations, Gambit. Everybody's mission in all of these books succeeded, overall, except yours. I mean, okay, I guess Gambit did bring the crystal back to Earth from the Shi'ar Empire, but now Apocalypse has it. That's no good. Seriously, dude, you had one job. So that's Gambit and the Externals. It's, in some ways, it's a slighter book, like... We don't really see much of the Age of Apocalypse because the characters are mostly in space, but it's just such fun, like, rollicking action drama in the fine X-Force fashion that I can't be mad at, it, at that at all. I'm a little bit mad at its generally, I think, underwritten and underused Lila Cheney. Okay, there is totally that, yeah, that's, that's unfortunate. I mean, in a lot of ways, it's the Gambit and, to a lesser extent, Guido show with some point-of-view work done by Jubilee, but it is a book called Gambit and the Externals, so, like, you know, okay, he can have the spotlight. Still, though, yeah, Lila, goddammit. Speaking of Lila, I'm going to basically parallel her powers and say our focus top topic this issue will take us from Earth to space, and specifically to... Space Marvel, Cosmic Marvel in the Age of Apocalypse. Now, we touched on this in episode 289 with regards to Corsair and the Brood, but obviously Cosmic Marvel in, in Earth-295 has gone in a very different direction than the one we're used to in the 616. Yeah, and I mean, we know that that's in large part due to the corrupted Emkron crystal and the fact that it wasn't uh, fixed, or at least its damage wasn't stopped, uh, the same way it was in 616. And the way that interacts with the varied timeline, I think, is hand-wavable away, largely by virtue of the fact that there's one Emkron crystal connecting through realities, and time moves kind of differently for it. But what we can't really hand-wave away as easily is the story that would come up a couple years later, where we learn that the Shi'ar Empire had been taken over by the Brood. Because we see the Shi'ar Empire here, and the Brood have definitely not taken it over. Do we learn that the Shi'ar Empire has been taken over the, by the Brood, or are we told that by a character who by that point is already a very unreliable narrator? I think it might be that, or it might be that, honestly, we just misinterpreted it. I, I reread Tales from the Age of Apocalypse, Sinister Bloodlines, the brood issue, and 
one of Christopher Summers' lines, one of Corsair's lines, stood out to me. For years, we used the ship to take revenge on what remained of the Shi'ar Empire. It seemed they were losing a war of their own. Which, if you look at it a certain way, implies that maybe the Brood, while they had taken over certain parts of the Shi'ar Empire, I mean, they were identifying as the Shi'ar when they captured Christopher, at least according to his memories, maybe the Shi'ar Empire was torn by war between themselves and the Brood. And this is just my guess, because there's no textual evidence for it, but maybe when Mad Emperor Daken got a hold of the Emkron, we know that gave him immense power, he used it to exile one sister and kill the other and take over the Empire, maybe he was able to use that to win the war against the Brood. Maybe it was just when Corsair was out in space before that the Brood were a major, major threat to the Empire and were taking over parts of it. Well, or there were outposts that were going back and forth in terms of control. The Shi'ar are pretty much always at war with everyone. That is their thing. Those space bird jerks. So, the Shi'ar Empire works out interestingly here. We see a lot of the same components we've seen in the 6161, but only at a very, very superficial level. And some of that is because we obviously don't have a lot of contact with it. But there's something almost, I don't know, almost like diorama-ish about the Shi'ar Empire as it exists here. Maybe it's because they're they're closer to the crystal, so there's more corruption. Maybe, yeah. I mean, we also just don't see as much opposition. Daken has had the, the Emkron crystal for longer, and he's basically taken over the whole thing. So all of that nuance and texture in the various rebellions within the Shi'ar Empire, all of the variation in different cultures and stuff, like, maybe it's all just been homogenized by Mad Emperor Daken having such complete control over the whole damn shebang. Looking in a different cosmic direction, though, we talked previously in an episode about how a lot of the big Marvel Universe events that are big deals in the 616 just aren't really represented here. Later on, they kind of are. As we've mentioned, in 2013, there was an ongoing Age of Apocalypse series that went on for actually quite a while, and the antagonist was Weapon Omega. That was Logan, who, having taken over Apocalypse's Death Seed, became kind of like the new version of Apocalypse. And in that series, we learned that the reason he did that, and the reason Apocalypse had built the world he had, was because the Celestial Host was coming. You know, the giant space robots that judge civilizations and then either annihilate and reset them or let them keep on living? We saw them in that rad X-Factor story a long, long time ago. They're very tall. They are very tall, and sometimes their heads look like coffee makers. But... The idea, retroactively then, was that Apocalypse, the reason he'd built this very confusing civilization that didn't even function really as a dystopia, was just to make sure that the inhabitants of Earth were powerful enough, on average, that the Celestials would not judge and destroy them. That's why he was trying to annihilate the less powerful people in the world, which is to say, the humans. And so that's what Logan takes up as his cause when he becomes Weapon Omega. So the Celestials do canonically exist in this world. It's just that they're off, you know, making coffee with their heads for a while. They're not going to show up until later. That's a really interesting source for Apocalypse's motivation. It's a very a piece of the action situation where he's got, you know, the celestial technology and he's got a limited understanding of it and he just sort of builds an entire society based on it. Yeah, well, we saw some of that as well in X Factor Forever by Louise Simonson. That was part of her original conception of the character is that the entire reason his survival of the fittest dogma was a thing was that he knew about the Celestials and he didn't want them to annihilate Earth. And so everything he was doing in his eyes, he was doing to protect Earth, even if it was like super genocidal and shitty. On that cheerful note... You've got questions. An anonymous listener asks on Tumblr, I've been thinking a lot about Apocalypse lately. In Extraordinary X-Men's Apocalypse Wars, the X-Men were flung to the far future where they encountered Apocalypse and were surprised to see him alive. When did he previously die? And since he came back with them to the present time, does that mean that the hot, big, blue dad in our current Dawn of X continuity is the same time traveler? And what exactly happened to him in the X-Men Black Run? Because I couldn't understand any of it. Oh boy, Apocalypse continuity. Time to earn that expert cred. So, Apocalypse's most recent death before the 2016 Apocalypse War story was actually a full decade of comics before. That was in the 2006 story Blood of Apocalypse by Peter Milligan, which is fucking bizarre. Eth, that's the one where Apocalypse also misunderstood the definition of the word decimation and wanted to reduce humanity to 10% of its population to even things out with mutants having been reduced after House of M. Anyway, at the end of that story, 
the X-Men, and the Avengers, and S.H.I.E.L.D., and Sentinel Squad 1 all teamed up to take Apocalypse out. And they basically fatally injured him, and he threw himself into a nearby giant Sphinx robot and died. And we find out later that, okay, the Celestials actually demanded that he finally pay them back for all the power he'd taken from them, and so presumably they were going to, like, stretch his last moments out into infinite torture or something. I don't know. But effectively, he died then. From what the X-Men saw, he definitely died. The Apocalypse who came back from Earth-16558, that's the alternate future in Apocalypse Wars from Extraordinary X-Men, he was killed in Extraordinary Number 16 when the super edgy version of Nightcrawler in that book threw Apocalypse into the World Eater big explosion energy thing. So that Apocalypse, no, he's not our current one. He is straight up dead. Who is the current one? That's the one who showed up in the other story you mentioned, X-Men Black. According to the Marvel database, he returned in secret. There's no explanation, no justification, it just turned out, actually, he was alive. I guess maybe he got out of that Sphinx thing because the Celestials were taking a coffee from their giant head break or something? I assume he just eventually paid them back. Oh, that could be it, I don't know. Um, maybe he had something really cool, like he found a really cool bug and he traded it to them? He finally saved up enough bells to get Tom Nook off his back. Ah, Tom Nook is a celestial. I knew it. As for what happened to Apocalypse and X-Men Black, why, gentle listener, that's simple. Clearly, Apocalypse created a whole civilization to be a body farm for his consciousness, but something went wrong, so he devolved into a chimpanzee for a while before re-evolving through sheer force of will. You remember that Voyager episode where they went at warp 10, and then Janeway and Paris turned into giant salamanders and had sex? I can never forget it. Never. Voyager was a hell of a show. The Anatomy of Dust asks on Tumblr, So I just finished Age of Apocalypse, and what actually was Apocalypse's plan? He refers to his centuries-old plan and lifetimes of planning, but when it comes down to it, he just seems to be continually winging it. Anytime someone turns against him, he seems happy to permit defiance because it's part of his survival of the fittest dogma. Is his centuries-old plan really as vague as to sporadically commit genocide, build statues, and foster defiance? I mean, honestly, that does in fact pretty much cover his plan, even when he's got a larger purpose like the one Miles described with regards to the Celestials. Apocalypse is not a details guy. No, we, we've come back to that again and again in the podcast. Like, every time he shows up, he's got this elaborate plan, but you're like, wait a minute, that's that's not your plan. That's just what happened when you saw the way things went, and then you just said you meant it to go that way all along. Well, he does have details that he's into, they're just not big picture details, or details that have to do with his final goal. Like, his plan is big and vague, but he knows he wants to achieve it using, like, really specifically themed people on robot horses. There's actually a really cool discussion of this very topic in the comments on our website for episode 292, that was the Factor X episode. Uh, it's about whether this version of Apocalypse is actually in any way following his survival of the fittest dogma from Louis Simonson's run, or if he's just sort of become by this point a generic mutant supremacist like Magneto was in the Silver Age, and he's just paying lip service to welcoming opposition and conflict. Uh, credit to our listeners Laz, Mark, and Ford99 for the thread. It's really interesting. I recommend checking it out. Speaking of listeners, we're a fully listener-supported podcast, and certain levels of support come with on-air acknowledgement from various fictional characters and concepts. Take it away, angry Claremontian narrator. It's always easy to say, if I'd only known then what I know now. But you, Shayna, you have learned better to your undoing. Yes, you know now that some things are not meant to be known by mortal minds. Things like Zack Klensky, the mere concept of whom is enough to break even the strongest of psyches and leave them forever unmoored damned to plummet it endlessly into horrors beyond human ken. And the mic from here goes to sexy Lila Cheney. That's kind of redundant. Oh, would you look at that. I picked the lock of this Dabari vault so perfectly that my clothes exploded right off. Ha, no need to look away, Andy Bilecki. I've got nothing to hide from you, pal. Take it all in. But would you mind bringing me something else to wear? Those tall boots, and that miniskirt, and that leather vest. Ooh, wanna pass me my axe, too? Aw, oh, shit, yeah, that's perfect. It calls for a sweet-as-hell guitar lick. And my clothes exploded again because, of course. 
I guess I rocked too hard? Hey, uh, Ty the Robot, mind helping me get this second set of backup clothes on? Oh, could you help me lace that corset a little tighter? Ah, that's... Mm, that's just right. Andy and Ty, we do look hot together, don't we? In fact, I think we look so good that... Damn it! And with that... Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Portland, Oregon, and New Fairfield, Connecticut, in Exile from Forest Hills, New York, and produced by Matt Hunter. New episodes come out most Sundays on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for all kinds of extra content, including visual companions to every episode. We'll see if we can convince Miles to provide his remembered version of his six-year-old invention, The Nuclear Naked. Oh, man. Our show is 100% listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. Next week is an off week. Which is to say, Hawk Talk, where we talk hawks. Sort of. But we'll be back in two, finally cracking into the core plot. In the pages of Amazing X-Men. I assume that at least one of them is a nuclear naked. Yeah, at least one. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so glad I brought up this anecdote. I am so offended that you never told me about this. Honestly, I don't think I've thought about it since I was six. Miles, our marriage was a lie. Oh, that's why it didn't work out. Now we know. Yeah, clearly. <laughs> I just... <laughs> Maybe we should use that little bit just now as a tag. I don't know. Uh, I will leave it entirely to Matt's discretion. <laughs>